it comes to social change or like serious development issues like gender inequality, people want to see somebody who is all in and completely determined and dedicated. If you surveyed, you know, 100 people and said, do you care about equality and human rights? Probably 99 out of 100 people would say yes. But the amount of time or money that people are willing to invest in solving social problems um, is usually not on the level with how the, the importance that they put on the social problem. You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sophia Bourne, and this season I'm sharing with you eight stories of inspiring young people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives. Today I'm speaking with Katie Carlson, an old friend of mine who works and lives in Kigali, Rwanda, and who has a very curious job title, a gender specialist. It's basically like being a social scientist, you know, and being able to sort of study social dynamics. Um, Gender is just one social dynamic among many. So essentially, as a gender specialist, what I do is uh, work with different organizations and basically help them understand where and how and to what degree gender dynamics, power dynamics between men and women, boys and girls play into the work that they do. Through her work, Katie gives organizations and the programs that they implement what she calls a gender makeover. So she looks at a given program, considers how it impacts girls and boys or men and women in different ways, and then looks at whether the program has been designed to account for these differences. So for example, uh, if you're working with children and you don't differentiate between boys and girls, uh, especially within a cultural context, taking into account all the different expectations and different barriers that girls face that are very different from what boys face, um, then the programs that you're trying to run are basically gender blind. And they don't have the social impact uh, that that you're setting out for, that you're looking for. So as a gender specialist, you can do many different things related to gender. But in, in, in my line of work, um, it's, it's essentially focused on educating people, um, conducting analysis of whatever the piece of work is or the program or even like a social, a social issue and how gender is playing into that and trying to transform social norms, essentially. In addition to being a consultant, Katie is the founder of Paper Crown Institute, an organization that runs education and capacity building programs for young women and girls in Rwanda. But before Katie became a champion for gender equality, her path led her in a slightly different direction. I did my uh, bachelor's in film production. I was initially very keen. I had a long background in the arts. Um, for all my younger years, and I was keen on making documentary films. And it was motivated by the same kind of drive that my work now is motivated by in terms of I wanted to sort of shed light on different issues around the world, issues of social justice and all sorts of different things. And I wanted to use documentary film to do that. And so I studied film. And of course, I had to study uh, many different things in conjunction with that, which I think is the great part about going to university instead of just going to a film school, because it completely broadened my mind. So where did your interest in gender come from? I was always interested in social activism and social justice. And even when I think about it now, I kind of, I don't really, when I think back, I kind of go like, where did that come from? There isn't really an obvious reason other than that my mom uh, was 
always very uh, outspoken about anything that she thought was, um, you know, marginalizing vulnerable people or social issues like racism or poverty and all this kind of stuff. She was always very passionate about those causes um, and and did uh, got involved in different activist things like going to marches and doing volunteer work, you know, for uh, battered women's shelters and things of that nature. So I think she kind of instilled that in me unknowingly. Uh, and then I, I kind of fell into gender. Um, I think I always felt like I was aware of inequality and sexism and I, and, and I railed against it internally, but I don't think I had a language to name it or describe it until the first year of university. In that first year, Katie took a women's studies class and that became a watershed moment in her development. It was a complete revelation because I finally had a language with which to actually be able to name and understand um, the world I was living in as a woman and all the issues I was facing as a woman. But um, yeah, it was it was a slow process. And I think, I think in general, I can say when I was taking gender classes, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't any social media. Um, so we didn't even really have an extra, an external space to talk about the things that we learned. And now I feel like in the last five, 10 years, um, discussions around these topics that are so, so important have just like exploded uh, because of social media, which I think has largely been really positive and um, moved us a lot in, in, a good, in a good direction. I always find it so fascinating when people start in one industry and then switch. So how did you end up making the move to international development? Just working in TV for a few years, I didn't really like the industry. And I could kind of see that if I was going to sort of invest my time and energy into creating documentary films, that it was going to be a long haul and probably not necessarily the, the, the work or the lifestyle that, that I would be happy in. Even though I was passionate about the art, there's always a big difference between, you know, studying and creating art and actually living in an industry and making a living from art. I think I, I think part of it also was that my 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 feminist self was evolving a lot in those years after my bachelor's. And I got involved in uh, different uh, forms of social activism in Vancouver, where I was living. And then I started doing burlesque dance, which to me was definitely a part of, of feminist activism. And I just started thinking like, I don't, I don't, I wanted to be more involved in a hands-on way. I wanted to go out into the world and be part of different things that were happening that were actually contributing to positive social change. And so I just kind of started searching online for what my dream job would be, what I figured, what I figured at that time, what my dream job would be, which is not very different from what I do now. And everywhere I looked, it basically said, oh, you need a minimum master's to apply for this or that job. And so that's, I never, I never planned on going to grad school, even though now it's kind of, you know, the thing that a lot of people are doing, um, because having a bachelor's is now kind of like having a high school diploma. And um, I, I, I looked for programs and I visited, visited some different schools. And I looked in the US, there was some programs I wanted to do at Columbia, but the tuition was just absurd. So um, 
and I, and I, and I have friends that went to Columbia and other schools and, and I don't think it would have honestly made a difference in terms of my career prospects, um, from where I am now in terms of the success I had. I think it's more about really knowing what you do and uh, being super passionate about it, completely immersing yourself in it. Katie did her master's in development studies and studied gender throughout. When the time came to write her thesis, she didn't want to write just any good enough paper. She wanted to make it count. So I started thinking about power and how women get power and how they use power and the role that power plays in determining the future of countries, of societies, of families, and especially obviously the, the power dynamics that are involved in gender relations. And so I thought about women getting power and then I thought about, you know, what's a form of power that women could wield? The most obvious one, power in the government. Rwanda sees itself as a pioneer, not only in encouraging women into politics, but in giving them the biggest voice in parliament. The constitution guarantees at least 30% of MPs are women, but women can also run for the seats contested by men. In the last elections in 2008, women took 44 of the total 80 seats. They are hoping for a similar result this time. Rwanda at the time had the largest number of women parliamentarians in the world. 56%. Today, this majority is at 64. South Africa wasn't far behind either, coming in third on the list. But what made the two countries similar and of interest to Katie was how the gender discourse was picked up by both governments in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide and the fold of apartheid in South Africa. And so what I wanted to do, like 20 years after, was to go to the countries and speak to different women's organizations and women in parliament and sort of get their feedback on like, okay, after all of that rhetoric and these sort of national gender machineries, as they're called, being set up. Office on the Status of Women sits in the president's office in South Africa, was supposed to have a lot of power, basically has none. Um, all the different uh, steps and mechanisms and institutions that Rwanda put in place and the laws and the constitutions and basically seeing, like, did that actually change anything for women? Like the average woman on the ground, has her life changed? Has her quality of life changed at all? And in what ways? Katie spent two months in each country doing research and immediately fell in love with Rwanda. It was clean and safe and welcoming and beautiful. What else do you need? So Katie finished her dissertation, packed her bags, and made the move. I had a, a super crappy job <laughs> working for a, working for a um, social enterprise, as they like to call themselves, that wasn't very well run or well managed. Yeah, it took some time. I didn't want to take another job just for the sake of taking another job. I wanted it to be something that would actually move me towards a goal. And so I st ended up staying with that company about two years, which was painful. Um, but, but in that time, I did a ton of other stuff and definitely got my street cred in terms of my, my gender expertise. I think the benefit of the crappy job was that, you know, it gave me a visa to be in Rwanda, to start doing the work that I wanted to do. But more than that, because the role that I was playing, I was building and managing relationships with all sorts of different partners in the country. And so being the person who was in charge of uh, creating relationships with different people and getting them involved in the work that we were doing, 
that's basically opened a million doors. And a lot of the people that I got to meet um, and the people they know and the people that they know who know other people, it was a huge benefit to me. Despite these benefits, Katie's job lasted far too long for her liking. And finding gender work in Rwanda was tough, especially as a foreign national. But Katie never lost sight of what she really wanted to do. And so she knew it was time to get creative. I just got to the point where I said, you know what, I, I want to work with teenage girls. Teenage girls are like that at that perfect age where you can engage them and really help shape their attitudes and their mindset around uh, gender and all the issues that they face uh, in adolescence and hopefully set them on a better path when they become adults. And so um, I just thought if I can't work in gender from someone else hiring me, then I'm just going to try something out for myself for free. And I think most of the time, if you're going to try something new as an entrepreneur or starting a nonprofit or anything, you're going to have to do it for free for a while because uh, you have to learn and you have to pay your dues, I guess. So I piloted a workshop with students from the Gashore Girls Academy uh, on gender and leadership. And from the evaluation forms that I got back from them, the response was tremendously positive and girls were just over the moon saying this should be taught in every school in Rwanda and this should be everywhere and all girls need this. And so from there, I decided to make it a little bit more comprehensive and I developed the idea of a three-month capacity building, a more intensive capacity building process with adolescent girls. Katie called this project Uwicheza, the one holding brightness. It was the very first project she piloted through the Paper Crown Institute. Over the period of six weeks, a cohort of 20 girls was introduced to such topics as basic gender education, leadership, gender-based violence awareness, career building and networking, community development, and effective mentorship. Then, for the following six weeks, the girls were paired with young Rwandan women who mentored them through the final project, a small-scale community-based initiative of their own choosing that addressed their community's needs. If you're wondering what the project meant for the girls themselves, here's a little clip for you. Oh, which is a project for me. It's amazing. Empowering. Perfect. Gender. Fun. Fascinating. Effective. Confidence. Leadership. Hope. Interesting. Networking. Purpose. You can. Equality. Future. Self-esteem. It's a project for me is moxie. Which is a project for me is powerful. Which is for me is Incredible. Incredible! The a project was a clear success, and Katie's work on it did not go unnoticed. A woman Katie met in Kigali happened to be working for Vulcan Capital, a Seattle-based company owned by Paul Allen. Yep, that's the same Paul Allen who co-founded Microsoft, and who also heads the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation. Through this foundation, Allen wanted to fund a girls' empowerment project, and it was Katie who was recommended to him by their mutual connection. He was interested in doing some kind of girls uh, empowerment project that involved chess because he saw the movie The Queen of Katwe and was inspired and thought chess was an amazing learning tool, which it is and has really, really proven to be now that we've done three rounds of that project. So I basically had like 48 hours to kind of chuck together a proposal for this money. And the project, the, the Queen's Gambit, it was called The Queen's Gambit. Uh, that we've now rolled out is the same as the 
our very first project model, but we've added chess training to it. So it was a model that we'd already tried and tested and was really successful. And so we added chess to it um, for the learning benefits and the critical thinking and the mathematics and the problem solving benefits of chess and pitched it to them and they went for it. And because it wasn't super expensive, they funded three cycles of the project. Um, And that was really just you know, getting an opportunity and going for it 110%. I think the biggest struggle in funding is actual fundraising. The actual process of fundraising is exhausting. Uh, It's very long-winded. Lots of times you have to go through so much time consumed and so much work and so much effort to go through two or three rounds of proposals for a very small amount of money. Certainly not a a big enough piece of money that's going to be able to sustain you and staff and projects for even six months. And so um, I really feel uh, for a lot of NGOs that that somehow seem to keep the lights on and make ends meet um, at the end of the day, because fundraising is a thousand times harder than you ever expect it to be. But I think my biggest learning from I think from that process is that fundraising from scratch is very difficult. But if you can find ways to sort of at least take those first baby steps and maybe run like one project of your own, however you have to fund it, that can prove that what you're doing has an impact. You'll you'll get a lot further than just launching an NGO with with never having tried or tested whatever intervention it is that you're promoting and expecting people to fund you. Because most funders, most donors of any size that would actually be able to fund you decently typically want an organization that has proven that it can operate and sustain itself for about two years before they'll give you money. Paper Crown is now registered both as a business and a non-profit organization. Katie runs the business side of things as a social business, consciously remaining the sole stakeholder in her company, preserving her vision and values, and making no more than what is necessary to cover the costs and keep the business going. A large portion of her consulting income is also funneled into the nonprofit arm of the Paper Crown Institute to supplement the institutional grants for various projects. Listening to Katie describe this model, I thought that the two sides of her enterprise worked in perfect symbiosis, but I still wondered if she preferred one side of it over the other. I think I'm actually really happy when I can kind of have the best of both worlds because as a consultant, you can kind of engage in higher level things and you can have um, a really powerful influence on other people that are influencers, on other people that are making decisions around where to prioritize resources or where to invest time and money and people hours into some kind of intervention uh, that will hopefully move us closer towards gender equality. I love doing the nonprofit stuff because I like being in the room with girls and engaging girls and making them aware um, that they have rights and that they have power and that they can have a voice. And that's one of the most rewarding, amazing things ever to see how a 15-year-old girl completely changes before your eyes over the course of three months and is then challenging her brothers and her boys in her class and teachers who are trying to treat her uh, in sexist ways. And that's that that part's amazing. So I think the combination of the two is really my happy place. I don't think I would be a hundred percent happy doing only one or the other. I think the 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 combination is really important. And I think they strengthen each other. 
So then how do you manage all your responsibilities on a day-to-day basis, um, your super packed schedule and basically not lose your mind? Well, <laughs> um, I did go crazy at one point. No, I did have a, I did have a, a work burnout, which I'm not ashamed to admit. And I think it'll probably happen to every person from my uh, generation because we're totally conditioned to uh, embrace being workaholics um, and never sitting still or enjoying doing nothing. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't the end of the world. Um, I think, I think in general, it's just, um, I'd say the healthy way to do it is to just manage, manage your time and manage your commitments. I basically don't commit to anything if I know that it's going to put me into like a hyper work zone. If I know that it's going to put me in a position where I don't have any rest or I have very little rest and very little downtime, because I think rest and 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 social time are very important uh, for balancing the stress and the pressure. But um, I don't know. I, I I think you. I think over time, if it's something that you're really passionate about and you really love doing, I think it doesn't. It's not as draining as if you're kind of having to force yourself through the daily motions of of a job that you might not really be very be very into. But I have to say also, in addition to that, um, in terms of the nonprofit stuff, I have a coordinator, a very good friend of mine, a Rwandan woman, who does half the work involved in running a three-month training project for girls. Um, So I definitely would not be able to do it on my own. And I wouldn't recommend it to anyone to try. Uh, there's just too many moving parts, and uh, it's it's important to collaborate with other people, um, and to and to look for help and to rely on other people to 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 make it happen. Because otherwise, it's it will probably be very low quality if you can even manage to pull it off on on your own. What do you think has been the biggest challenge in building your career the way you wanted, and what did you learn from that? I think it was probably being poor. I think that was. <laughs> probably the biggest challenge was, um, suffering through those first few years after grad school where you're carrying a lot of debt and you're not making very good money and you're trying really hard to like sort your life out and, you know, find ways to gain experience and all that kind of stuff. But I think in terms of, um, I don't know if I would call it a challenge, but I would probably say the the most advantageous learning that I gained from my experience since grad school over the last five, six years in Rwanda would be that investing, uh, investing time and energy in networking with people, being social, getting involved in things that don't necessarily pay, but are really great learning experiences. I, I kind of made that a priority and I think it served me really well. Um, I think that was probably the biggest advantage that made, like right now when you asked that question, made me feel like there wasn't any major challenge because every time there was an opportunity, I, I took it and I learned and I built up my networks and I built up my skill set. And then when there wasn't an opportunity, I just made one for myself. And that set off a chain of events that to, to up to now has just led to more and more and more opportunities coming up, both on the nonprofit and consulting side. So um, other than other than being poor and suffering f- through the first three years, um, you know, struggling sometimes to be able to buy food and 
other challenges. Um, I think that, I don't know, I've been really lucky. Uh, and I think I, I went about it in a way that uh, had a lot of advantages to it. success mean to you and do you consider yourself successful yes <laughs> I do I do think I'm successful and I think I'm uh, just in the last year or so really coming into my own in terms of what I would consider being successful uh, success for me is it's a blend of practical reality but also sort of whether or not I'm actually achieving anything in terms of what I value or what I believe in. I consider success to be having gone out into the world and spoken my truth and embraced other people in a sense where even though they have different values than me or obviously maybe are still living in um, in a way that kind of perpetuates or embraces gender bias, feeling like I can bring them in uh, in a non-judgmental way Anytime I can move one person more in the direction of becoming aware of gender dynamics and acknowledging what they look like in their own lives and acknowledging that uh, they shouldn't just be passively accepted, even if that's the easier or less confrontational route, but that they should be challenged and that society and in the long run will continue to suffer and, and feel the negative impacts socially, politically, economically the longer that we ignore gender dynamics and the power imbalances that they bring. I feel like for me, that's success. And I also, uh, I'd say on the financial side, because I think people who invest a lot of their time and energy in social causes, a lot of times uh, people who are in this field are undervalued uh, for what they bring because it's, it's, it's not private sector. Uh, it's not work that's based on a, on, a, on a profit model, but it's work that matters. And if you surveyed, you know, 100 people and said, do you care about equality and human rights? Probably 99 out of 100 people would say yes. But the amount of time or money that people are willing to invest in solving social problems um, is usually not on the level with how the, the importance that they put on the social problem, which is which is problematic in and of itself because we're not really investing in these issues at the level we should be. And so for me, um, part, of, part of success and, and what I think also women should strive for and embrace is making really good money, being really good at what you do and being rewarded for it financially, I think is important. I don't think, I don't think there's any valor or honor in sacrificing everything because that's not sustainable in the long run. Um, sacrificing everything for a social cause. What spells success for me is being strategic about how I influence and where I influence and making sure that I am a specialist at a level that is highly competitive, where I can go in and do the work that I love and influence people and transform social norms and still be well paid for that. Because I think transforming social norms for, for human rights and equality is as important as designing, you know, the next smartphone.
When I was working in TV, I remember kind of having this moment where I was like, oh, I feel like I want to change my career path. And I remember feeling kind of conflicted about that and investing all this time in film and television and, and should I leave? And and I remember sort of having this one evening to myself in the house, kind of brainstorming, um, you know, and journaling and trying to figure out like, where do I really want to go and what will make me happy? And I remember writing in my notebook that really all I wanted to do in whatever form that it might take was to send energy out into the world that changes people's minds. And that was literally it in a nutshell. And so I was doing that. I was passionate about doing that through documentary film. Um, and now I do it myself as an individual person. One day I was riding on the back of a motorcycle, which is how I would get around back when I was poor, poor in my crappy, crappy job. And I was on the back of a motorcycle and I, and I passed a little boy uh, who was coming home from school and he was so cute and tiny carrying this enormous backpack. And he had this red, pinky red kind of crown that he had made out of paper, like the ones little kids make. And he had stuck it on his head and he was walking around with this paper crown. And when I passed him on the motorcycle, I said to him, like, I kind of whispered to myself, I was like, paper crown. And I, and I, and I thought, I, I love the sound of the name and, and all the ideas that I'd been thinking of in terms of what I wanted paper crown to stand for um, seemed to be captured really well in that idea, which was you don't need to be rich um, or to be, you know, connected. You don't need to be politically savvy or be a president or be a millionaire to be a leader or to make an influence or to make a positive impact. And so I thought about it in the sense of like, you know, you, you make your own crown out of paper and it can be whatever you want it to be. And you invest in yourself because what you have in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit is more valuable than outward trappings of what people consider to be success or influence. This episode was produced by me, Sophia Bourne, but would not have been possible without the amazing Katie Carlson. To find out more about Katie's work, as well as for show notes and useful links, go to Sophia Does Words. That's S-O-F-Y-A doeswords.com slash podcast. If you take yourself seriously and you take what you do seriously, other people will see that. And and you're the that's the kind of thing people want to bet their money on. They don't just want somebody who can speak all the jargon and, and you know, is like the, the, the typical consultant type. They want, when it comes to social change or like serious development issues like gender inequality, people want to see somebody who is all in and completely determined and dedicated. If you like this episode and want to hear more stories like Katie's, make sure to subscribe to Meaningful on your preferred podcast app. And if you take a moment to rate and review Meaningful on iTunes, you will most certainly receive a load of good vibes from me to last you at least a month. I'll be back next week with another story for you, this time from the heart of London.